I um, really enjoyed uh, that last song um, talking about that we are on the Lord's side. And before I get into tonight's lesson, it just reminds me of um, Joshua chapter 5. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. This is, you know, when we talk about the various places in the Old Testament, we, we know that all of the Old Testament points to Christ. Christ said that himself. You know, he, he showed how starting from the beginning and throughout all the Old Testament, it all testified about him. Um, and chapter five is one of these uh, places that I love to, to go to. Um, you may remember the, the account of Moses um, in the, you know, when he could, he's in the mountain, the burning bush incident, right? Um, the Lord is speaking to Moses through the burning bush and, and uh, Moses had on sandals. But what did the Lord tell Moses to do? Take him off. off. Why? Because the ground is? Holy, holy. And, and this I love. You get into Joshua because Joshua is going into the promised land and he is um, starting to conquer the, you know, the, the enemies. At least he's about to. I think he's about to come up onto Jericho um, here at the end of uh, chapter 5. Um, but starting in verse 13, Joshua 5, 13, we read this. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, that's a good question. You know, whose side are you on? Right. But I, I love the answer from this man because this man just shows, no, you're asking the wrong question. He, he said, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And then look at Joshua's response. He fell on his face to the earth, bowed down, and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I mean, I, I get chills every time I, I read that. I mean, that's, that's a pre-incarnate Christ um, appearing before Joshua. And as Joshua asked that question, Are you with us or for us? I, I love the answer. He's like, no, I'm the captain. And then whew, Joshua just falls down onto his face. He has to remove his sandals. Why? Because the ground is holy. And what is it that makes the ground holy? It's not anything intrinsically about the ground itself. It's the fact that Joshua is in the presence of God. He's in the presence of the Lord. So love that song. That's the passage that, um, that, that came to mind as, as we were singing that. Um, but for tonight... We are now going back to our statement of faith. Last week, we talked about the scriptures. Um, this week, uh, we're talking about the true God. Um, so article number two is of the true God. And I read this a little bit, and it's interesting because it's not necessarily focusing on God the Father, but really God in his totality, right? God in his totality. And if you have the statement, um, it reads this. We'll go ahead and read through all of this, and we'll kind of break this down and think through this. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, the infinite, omniscient spirit, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love, that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. And when I think about that last sentence where it says that they are executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption, 
um, we're kind of learning that as we go through that first chapter of Ephesians, aren't we? You know, that section from Ephesians uh, 1, 3 all the way to 14 talks about what each of the three members of the Godhead does. And in fact, the, the way I've heard it phrased is that God is the one who sets the plan. Jesus Christ is the one who executes the plan. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the plan to the hearts of believers. You know, so uh, amongst those three, you have a very, um, you know, they're equal in essence, um, as is often said, but they're distinct in persons and, and distinct in, in functions. Um, but how do we reconcile the fact that there are three persons and yet one God? What do you guys think? How would you reconcile that? Because that's the, that's the complaint, right? That's the objection for people that say that we are worshiping multiple gods. Because the scriptures clearly say one God. Well, this may sound a little simplistic, but one uh, application that has helped me is the idea that uh, we have H2O, which is steam, water, yeah. and ice. Right, right, right. And they are the same chemical composition. They each have different characteristics, and yet they are still H2O. The same. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I know that's. Uh, grossly oversimplified. Right, right. But that has helped me. Yeah, and you, you know, we, we can come up with um, a lot of analogies to try to help us, and, and I think that's a, that's a good one, and yet we know that these analogies, at some point, they fall short. You know, in, in many ways, they do fall short. But I, I, do, I do like kind of that uh, illustration. Let me, um, <coughs> let me take you to Deuteronomy 6.4. You know, actually, before that, go to Genesis 1. Let's go to Genesis 1. Let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 specifically. And this is fascinating um, because what we have here is, is God speaking to himself, really. You know, after creation, or actually during creation, um, before creating man, in Genesis 1, 26, we have this um, statement uh, from God. Chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what's interesting is that in verse 26, what is peculiar about how God refers to himself? Us. Our, yeah, you know, and this is in the Hebrew. It's very distinct. I mean, you can't you can't deny it. God is referring to himself as a plurality. He's saying, "Let us make man in our image." And what I love is that this is the creation account, right? This is the book of beginnings. So as Moses is writing this, I mean, from the very first chapter, from the creation account, we have God actually referring to himself as a plurality. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. But we would lose sight of the full picture if we didn't look also at verse 27 because it says God created man in whose image? His own image. Now th this is key because there are a lot of excuses that people come up with for verse 26. Have you guys heard of any of the explanations for verse 26 for people that say that, that the Trinity is false? For instance, in for verse 26, some people will say that no, 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 this is you know, God is, is talking to the angelic hosts, talking to fellow angels. So this is not God as a plurality of people, but this is God and angels. 
What's the problem with that? Angels are not God, right? And, and if he's talking to angels, he's saying, let's make man in our image. The implication is that we're going to make man in the image of God and angels. But then when you look at verse 27, what does it say? God created man in what? His own image. And specifically, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, so we see very clearly that when God said, let's make man in our image, the very next verse says that man is created in his image. You know, so we we have this struggle here um, between these two verses that, you know, I'm sure as Moses was writing this, unless he was given additional revelation, I'm sure he's writing this going, wow, this I, I don't understand this, but I know this is coming from God. So, you know, he's he's recording it, you know, but not having a full understanding of what's being portrayed here. But here's what's interesting. Verse 27, once again, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And who's the him? Created him. Man. Okay, but what is man? Because at the, the very last clause there is male and female. He created them. So even man, saying God created man, refers to man singularly, but then reveals that man is plurality. It's male and female. He created them. And then turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have the detailed uh, account of um, how man is created. Um, But near the end of chapter 2, go down to verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24, we read this. um, For this reason, a, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is a very common verse. Where do we often hear this verse? Weddings, right? We hear this at weddings, the union of two people. You know, this verse is often cited to say that, okay, you are now to leave your family. You are to be joined to your wife and you are what? One. You are one flesh. Now, here's what's interesting. That Hebrew word for one is echad. I'm probably not saying it quite correctly. It's a guttural language, but it's, um, it's the Hebrew word echad. Um, and, and why is that significant? Because when you go to Deuteronomy 6, go with me now to Deuteronomy 6. Fifth book of the Old Testament, the fifth book, that, uh, fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And really in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has come back to the edge of the promised land and second generation has been raised up and Moses is recounting everything that um, has happened um, to the Israelites up to this point. But he makes this statement and this is what we call the Shema, right? I mean, this is all of all Israelites. You're not a true Jew unless you know this one by heart. All Jews know this verse. Chapter six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. So this is often a verse that we go to to show that God is clearly one. But guess what? That word for one is the same word, echad, used for one flesh. The idea is that, yeah, there is a oneness, but it doesn't, it doesn't limit or, or exclude the possibility of a plurality within that oneness. So, yeah, God is one. But just as one flesh consists of male and female, the one God consists of the triune God that's being referred to in Genesis 1 when God said, let let us make man in our image. 
let us make man in our image. And then, of course, we have that, um, you know, Genesis, even in Genesis, I think, 1, 1 to 3, and that's one of the verses um, cited uh, in our statement of faith, going back to the beginning. I mean, in the very beginning, we have the Spirit being mentioned here. Genesis 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. I mean, that's very interesting because in verse 1, we have that God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse, three, verse 2, we have that the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. So obviously both having a tight connection with who God is, and yet we're talking about two distinct persons right there. Now, who's not being mentioned here, right here in Genesis, is who? Jesus Christ. But then where would we go to show that Jesus Christ had a role in creation? Yeah, you go 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 to John one one. Turn with me to John one one. <clears throat> you, you know, and you gotta love um, the way John writes here because, you know, when you think about Genesis, the first four words of Genesis was in the beginning God, right? In the beginning God. The 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 entire assumption is that from the very beginning God had always existed, right? And and here in John 1, 1, John is really picking up on that same theme of in the beginning. But now he adds a twist to it. He doesn't just say in the beginning, God. What does he say in verse 1? In the beginning was the word. Very interesting. In the beginning was the word. And just so people don't misunderstand, he says the word was with God, meaning that this word is distinct from God the Father. But not only was the word with God, but the word was God. So this is John saying that, look, this word existed from eternity past. He was with God the Father, and he was also God himself. And so with those brief statements, John is affirming from the very beginning that we had Jesus Christ from the beginning. He was with God, and he was God. And I love when we get to you know, let's continue. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. And then verse three, all things came into being through him. This is talking about the word. All things came into being through him. And just in case people might misunderstand, John then says, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So in other words, when you look at all of creation, there is nothing that exists in creation that did not come through Jesus Christ. So what that means, going back to creation, God created the heavens and the universe. We saw the spirit of God hovering over the waters, but the agent of that creation was Jesus Christ. The agent of that creation was Jesus Christ. Um, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and go to verse 15. Because it's not John, it's not just John who affirms this. You, you know, it's funny how people will 
go back and try to humanistically explain why certain writers said certain things. They don't want to say that it was the word of God. They don't want to say that, that these men were moved by the Holy Spirit to bring us God's word. You know, so some people will say, well, John, towards the end of his life, he, he was imprisoned and, and his mind wasn't right. And he had, um, you know, he had these illusions and stuff like that. So they'll, they'll use that to, to kind of discount John's writings. Well, here in Colossians, this is the writing of the Apostle Paul. And in verse 15, he talks about Jesus Christ, says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is interesting because man is created in the image of God, right? Okay, but this is different. He is not saying Jesus is created in the image. What is he saying? He is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And by the way, when he says thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he is talking about the entire spiritual realm. He is not just talking about what we can see. He's also talking about what we can't see. Angels. I mean, the, the, the spirits and the angels and even now demons, that's all part of the, the, the principalities and, and the dominions and rulers and authorities. And he says at the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, I know some of you had a chance to have had a chance to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. And what's the fatal mistake that Jehovah's Witnesses make about Jesus Christ? Well, they don't believe the Trinity. Yeah, they would say that Jesus Christ, they would say, yeah, he's God, but he's a lesser God. He's not the same kind of God as God the Father. And if you were to open up the Jehovah's Witness Bible and turn to this verse when it says, when it says in verse 16, for by him all things were created, the Jehovah's Witness Bible will instead say, for by him all other things were created. It'll add the word other. Interesting, right? Now, here's the thing. If you were to look at the original Greek, there's no word other in there. It's not there. It's simply not there. They're just adding that in there. And, and um, I've heard that the Jehovah's Witness, kind of their commentary on this, say that this must be, say, this must be inferring other. We're, we're putting other in. It must be inferred because if this is truly saying that all things were created through Jesus Christ, then guess what? He must be equal to God. But he isn't, so that's why we're saying other. Now, Talk about hermeneutics. I've been mentioning hermeneutics the last couple of weeks, principles of Bible interpretation. The idea of hermeneutics is that you let the Bible speak for itself. You develop your theology, your understanding of Scripture based upon what the Scriptures say. You don't go the other way around. The other way around is I start with my theology and I make sure that the Scriptures fit my theology. See, so hermeneutics, you, you have the Word of God, you have principles of Bible interpretation, and through the correct principles of Bible interpretation, you arrive at correct theology. But what a lot of people do is they start with their theology, and then they'll twist the scriptures in order to fit what they wanted to say. Um, so I, I just wanted to take you through those passages as we're thinking about the triune God and um, what the scriptures testify to it. And by the way, you know, when we think about how Genesis 1 talked about God saying, let us make man in our image, you know, the unbelieving Jews that look at that passage, I told you, they've come up with unbiblical explanations that, no, God is talking about angels and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's, there's a lot of critics who will say that the scriptures have been modified many, many times over the years. 
It's been redacted, it's been rewritten, it's been changed, and what we have does not reflect what was originally written. Can I tell you, if that was true, we wouldn't have Genesis with God saying, let us make man in our image. The Jews had no explanation for that. And if they really wanted to preserve this idea that God could only be one person, at some point you would think that they would look at that verse and say, we need to change that. But no, that's not what they do. They preserve it. And instead, they try to find alternative explanations for it. But to me, it's one of those many, many proofs that the Bible has been remarkably well preserved because even difficult passages like that have been preserved by Jews who don't believe in the Trinity, who don't believe that God is a plurality. So, I mean, that's just one of the many reasons to be encouraged. And then even when you consider Moses, Moses wrote the five books of, you know, the five books of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Who did he write them for? Who is his audience? You guys know? The Jews, specifically which Jews? At what time period? What's that? The second generation that came out of what? Yeah, that came out of Egypt. All right. So in other words, you know, Moses wrote these five books. And, and obviously Genesis was meant as a historical book. But from Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy, everything that Moses says, he is writing it to people that, guess what? They've experienced it. They've experienced it. Now, why am I pointing this out? Because you know what? If, if I were to write a history book of modern-day events that you guys have lived through, that you guys have witnessed, because even though these were second generation, they actually witnessed the things that happened. Second generation, what we say by second generation, the first generation was killed off during the 40 years of the wilderness, but it was really those who were old enough to serve um, as part of like the, the military. So they would have been of a certain age, but the ones who were younger were preserved, and that was the group that was raised up and became that second generation. A lot of them lived through the things that Moses um, had described to them. And what's interesting is if, if I had wrote an account of all that has happened in history, things that you have actually experienced, you're going to pick up right away if I'm not telling you the truth, right? Yeah. For that group, it didn't take them faith. It, it didn't require faith for them to believe what Moses said. Because they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we lived through that. We know that. You're just reminding, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we know about that. That's right. We, we saw that. That's right. We, we, we saw the work of, of God in Egypt. We, we saw the ten plagues. We, we saw the institution of the Passover and, and how God delivered us through the Red Sea. We, we saw how the Ten Commandments came to us from Mount Sinai. You know, we saw how God has preserved us with manna from heaven for 40 years through the wilderness. We saw how our, our sandals never wore out during that time, how God just supernaturally provided for us. And you would think that if Moses was writing to an audience that really didn't experience all that, you would think one of them would say, Moses, what are you talking about? That's not what happened. But no, I mean, what Moses writes, it really did happen. And those traditions carried forward all the way to this day, all the way to this day. In fact, um, my, my wife was looking at, um, I think, the Song of Moses. I, I want to say it's Deuteronomy 32. Go, go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is the uh, song of Moses. And, and actually, just for a little context, look at the end of Deuteronomy 31. Um, Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 26. And I'm diverting a little bit from our topic, but bear with me. So Deuteronomy 31, verse 26. Uh, Moses, the Lord is speaking to Moses. 
And verse 26, he writes this, Take this book of the law, place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be, remain there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from my way, which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. Now, this is what's interesting. So actually, these are the words of Moses to his congregation, to, to the Israelites as they are gathered together. Um, but then he has them memorize this song. Um, this song, the, the song of Moses, and, and when you read through the song, the song is a testimony of their uncoming, upcoming unfaithfulness. <laughs> I mean, normally when we think of songs, we think of songs celebrating our goodness, celebrating our victory, celebrating things that were good in the past. But, but this is a song that's meant for them to be reminded that they're going to be unfaithful against God. I, I mean, that, that to me is amazing. Verse 5, they have acted corrupt, corruptly towards him. They are not his children because of their defect. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Um, verse 6, do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has brought you, who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel, and so on and so forth. But, you know, this is not a positive testimony of the future. And so it's, a, it's amazing. I mean, this is just more proof of, of just the divine will and the omniscience of God that even before it happens, he has the people memorize a song that prophesies of their upcoming rebellion. And again, this is Moses writing to the people that experienced all that Moses had described together and now has them memorize this song that they would pass down generation to generation so that they would remember that God had told them from the very beginning, you're going to rebel against me. I mean, that's, um, that is amazing. Now, I, I went off on a little tangent there, but uh, let's get back to what the, um, our statement of faith says uh, of the true God. So I think those verses that I went to earlier, I just wanted to really establish the Trinity um, and show that really even in the Old Testament, we see you know, those, um, those hints at the Trinity. We, we see God as a plurality, um, and certainly that's made more clear once we get to um, the New Testament. So once again, the statement reads, we believe there is one and only one living and true God. So he is one and yet he is three. And this says the infinite omniscient spirit. Okay, what do we mean by infinite and omniscient spirit? Let's start with infinite. Why infinite? Yeah, he's not a finite being, right? No beginning, no end. Yeah, no beginning, no end. And that's like what Jesus will say when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Right. I, I am the, the beginning and, and the end. Um, God would say that um, often in, in the Old Testament as well about himself. No beginning, no end. So infinite. Um, and then omniscient. What's omniscient? All knowing. All knowing. Now, spirit. What do we mean by spirit? Are we talking about the Holy Spirit here? When we say God is the infinite omniscient spirit. What do you guys think? 
physical. Okay, and, and um, give me a passage you would go to to prove that. There it is. John 4.24. Um, look at 4.24. I want to say, I hope I remember that right. Let's go there. Let me see. Yeah, John 4.24. This is Jesus with the woman at the well, right? Um, so he goes to meet the woman at the well, and they have this conversation. Um, and then they end up talking about um, God and and how he's seeking true worshipers. And actually, if you start in verse 21, and you know what, even go back to verse 19, John chapter 4, verse 19, I mean, they have this conversation. Um, Jesus reveals that he knows that this woman doesn't have one husband, right? She has multiple, and, and the one that she's staying with is not even her husband. And verse 19, this is where the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, she knows that because there's no way anyone would have known that just by meeting her, right? So he must, he must be a prophet to know that. And so now, now that she understands that he's a prophet, this is the question that really all Samaritans, um, that, that really bothers all Samaritans, because Samaritans were rejected by Jews. Samaritans were like half-breeds. These were the people that were, um, they, they were exiled from the, um, the northern kingdom of Israel, um, and they were never formally brought back, but they kind of were in the land, and they ended up they ended up um, really intermarrying with um, with the with the uh, the Canaanites, uh, the surrounding nations. Um, actually, in that point, I guess it would be the Assyrians. Um, so th- this is really one of the conflicts that Samaritans have with Israelites. Verse twenty: Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now. For the Israelites, Jerusalem was the place. Biblically, Jerusalem was the place. Why? What was in Jerusalem? Yeah, it was the temple. Yeah, it was the temple. But the Samaritans had come up with a different tradition where it was on that mountain they were on that they would worship. And verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Meaning your worship is not going to be dependent upon location. You're going to be able to worship God wherever you are. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And I love that statement because Jesus is saying, look, you Samaritans, you are worshiping a God that you don't know. We Jews, we know because obviously the Jews have the writings. You know, they, they have the truth that's been handed to them that the Samaritans had lost. Verse 23, yes. Did they not know? Did they not have the writings at that time when they had access to some of the writings, but really the Samaritans, they, they believed in the five books of Moses, the, the book of the law, and then they didn't put any stock into anything after that. Right. Yeah, good question. Um, verse uh, 23, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You know, it's interesting about this passage because it says that God the Father is the one who seeks his worshipers. We don't seek God. It's God who seeks us. You know, and and sometimes we have what we call seeker-sensitive churches where the church service ends up, um, uh, you know, trying to modify their services in order to be more pleasing, more comfortable for people that don't know God. Um, The idea is that we want to make our services more friendly to those who are seeking God but don't know God yet. Well, this verse tells us that, no, it's God who seeks worshipers. 
It's God who seeks, not man. And then verse 24, this is the verse that Mel was talking about. God is spirit. God is spirit. So in other words, he, he, he's not a physical being. He's not someone that we can actually see like we can, can each other. And that was the thing. When Jesus Christ was made incarnate, he, he went from being spirit to actually being a physical being, to being incarnate uh, in the, you know, made uh, like one of us, like, like man. So God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So really saying that we must worship in spirit, you know, man is really a, a duality. We, we consist of both flesh and spirit. Um, we, we consist uh, of both. So we have a spiritual being. So, for instance, when when we die, right, you know, the deacon Stephen, you think about the deacon Stephen, when he was stoned to death, he looks up at the sky. And what does he say? He says, receive my spirit. Right. Um, and, and when Jesus talked to the thief on the cross and the thief um, said, said to, to Jesus, remember me. And, and Jesus said, today you will be what? You, you'll be with me in paradise. The idea is that in spirit, he would be in paradise. So we have a spiritual being that will be separated from our physical bodies only after we've died. But until then, we're both both um, flesh as well as spirit. And so the idea that we are to worship in spirit is that from our inner being, the inner being that cannot be seen, we are worshiping God. Yeah. Can you bring the soul into that um, discussion? Yeah, yeah. So that that's a great question. So there's... There are people that believe that God is, um, that man is three, not just two. So I would say flesh and spirit. Um, some people say flesh, spirit, and soul, right? And in, in the scriptures, you will find places where you will see both of them mentioned. But um, while I, I don't have the scriptures to, to back up what I'm about to say right now, but there are many places where you can see soul and spirit are interchangeable. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see any difference between the two. Okay, but you've got a verse in Hebrews that talks about the division. Yeah, in fact, let's look at that. Let's look at that. Hebrews 4.12. Yeah, Hebrews uh, 4.12 is a great verse, obviously, for um, the scriptures how we portray the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we stop right there. So we, we start by saying that the word of God is living and active. So this, this book, this is not a dead book. This is a divine book. It is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The idea of two-edged sword means it, it's, it's accurate. I mean, it's, um, it, can, it can discern, and what it's about to say, it can discern and, and divide a lot of things. Um, but here are the examples it gives us. Okay. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. So we have that right there. So that, that would suggest that there's a difference between soul and spirit. But here's the thing. If you want to say that there's a division between soul and spirit, you have to carry that out to the other examples as well. So not only soul and spirit, but of joints and marrow. Um, how would you separate joints and marrow? Well, there is marrow, okay? I mean, there, physically, you, you, could, you could make an argument for that. But now look at the final one, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So to judge the thoughts and intentions. So we have soul and spirit. We have joints and marrow. We have thoughts and intentions. And let me ask you this. Is there a difference between thoughts and intentions? Can, can you describe the difference between is isn't it intention separate from a thought no, but it's 
Yeah, there, there's, there, there is some, there, there's some difference in terms of its function. But you can't have like an intention without a thought, can you? Can you? Well, you make a statement that you don't really mean. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, w I would argue that the thought is still that you're saying something that you don't really mean. Yeah. And if he are created in the image of God, who is a trinity, would it not make sense that man is a trinity of soul, spirit, and body? Yeah. I, that's, um, that's an interesting point. Um, but when you look at God... It's not soul, spirit, and father, right? It's father, son, and spirit. Now, God is spirit. Jesus once was spirit, and he is now flesh. Um, but I, I think um, we, we have to be careful of making, trying to make exact comparisons between man and God. Now, man is created in the image of God, and that's a whole other discussion. What do we mean by that, right? There's what we call communicable and incommunicable attributes, right? There are certain attributes that God alone has, but there are many attributes that we share with God. And I'll give you an example. Like, for instance, we know that God is a creator, right? He's a creator God. Well, when you look at the history of all mankind, one of the things that distinctly separates man from all other creation is really our ability to create, isn't it? I mean, often I make the argument that, you know, people will say that, um, yeah, you know, dolphins are more intelligent or this species is more intelligent, that species is more intelligent. Well, I would say, you know what? Mankind is the only species that is able to build off the knowledge of its predecessors, right? We continue to advance in many ways. Man doesn't live the same way it lived 100 years ago. And 100 years ago, they didn't live the same way they did 100 years prior to that. You know, so there are, there are progressions of, of knowledge and, and of technology and advances where, you know, any animals you look at, they live the same today as they did 100 years ago. And the one 100 years ago lived the same way that they did 100 years before that. You know, unless the environment has changed and they've been forced to adapt. That would be the, that would be the exception there. But otherwise, you know, animals from generation to generation are the same. They're, they're, they're really animals. Uh, but with thoughts, uh, with regards to soul and spirit, let me do this. Um, for the next time we have this, and it won't be next week, because next week we've got the quarterly meeting. But after that, I will come prepared with some verses to, to take a look at soul and spirit. Soul and spirit. But I, I would argue that, uh, that they're the same. I would argue that they're the same. So I, I would say when we take a look at um, um, Hebrews 4.12, you know, I, I think when we start to get into the piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, I don't believe that's meant to be taken literally to say that these are different and can be literally split from one another. You know, but, um, but that really is just these are, these are emphases to just show that the word of God is living and active. These, these are uh, illustrations or analogies. But... I will come back in a couple of weeks, and we'll, we'll talk about some of that. All right. Any other questions at this point? All right. No, good questions, though. Good questions. Keep me on my toes. Um, so going back to the statement once again. So the infinite, omniscient spirit. So we just established that God is spirit. And when we say inf infinite and omniscient, well, omniscient is really one of his attributes. That means he's all-knowing. But there are many attributes that describe God, isn't there? What are some other attributes you would come up with? All powerful. All powerful, which is omni what? Om omnipotent. Omnipotent. Yeah, he's all powerful. What else? 
omnipresent. What does that mean? Everywhere. Yeah, he's everywhere. Yeah, he, he's everywhere. And in fact, this, um, I don't remember what context this came up in, but um, I was talking recently about, uh, about hell. And a lot of people will say that um, hell, in hell, there's no presence of God. And I would say, well, if we say that God is omnipresent, then we can't say that God is not in hell. Um, and actually, who do you think fuels the flames of that lake of fire to make sure it burns day and night forever and ever, right? Um, but what we would say, and I see a lot of surprised looks on your faces, <laughs> but what we would say is this, is that the, the, the face of God does not shine in hell, all right? So, I mean, you, you read many Psalms, and it was actually the Wednesday night Bible study, I, I kind of mentioned this, but when you read um, some of the Psalms, the psalmist will often say, Lord, shine your face on us. You know, and the idea is that give us your blessings, give, give us your goodness, bless us. And, and what I would say is that in hell, there is an absence of blessings from God. But make mo no mistake, I mean, someone is fueling that fire, right? Some, someone is fueling the, the, um, the, the, the pain and the torment that's being felt by the reprobates. Um, and that's, that's God. But they're not seeing the blessings of God. And the same thing in heaven for those who are saved, we don't see the wrath of God. You know, so the wrath of God is in one place. The blessings of God is in another for those who are saved. Um, so, yeah, he is omnipresent. Can you guys think of any other attributes that you would give to God? How about that he is in total control? What would you say? What's that word? Yeah, sovereign. Sovereign. He is in total control. And, and you know, what's amazing about these attributes, when you think about these attributes, they really connect to, to, together with one another. I mean, think about this. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, and he's sovereign, which means he's in total control. Now, what happens if you say that God is not omnipotent? Can you say now that he's sovereign? No, you, you can't. You can't. And, you know, there are some people that want to compromise on the idea that God is all-knowing, that he is omniscient, that he knows everything. Now, why do you think people would want to compromise on God's omniscience? Can you guys think of an example? It bolsters free will. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, also, in order to come up with an acceptable explanation for evil. So they will say that, no, no, God didn't know this evil was coming. God didn't know that that evil would be chosen and this and that. So, so in other words, they, they want to limit God's omniscience to say that, uh, for instance, tragedies that happen. And it, look, tragedies happen, and, and sometimes we have no human explanation that's going to be acceptable to a person. You know, but oftentimes what a lot of Christians will do is say that God did not see that tragedy coming. And so 9-11 might be an example. God did not see that tragedy coming, right? But what, yeah, I, yeah, I see Maureen scoffing because if you read through the Old Testament, you know, the tragedies that happened upon Israel, God told them ahead of time the tragedies that was going to come upon them. You know, I mean, even if you read through Habakkuk, you know, Habakkuk, in, in the book of Habakkuk, God is complaining. I mean, not God. Habakkuk is complaining to God talking about the sinfulness of Israel and saying, God, look at these people. They're disobeying. They're rebelling. Re rebelling. Do something about these people. And you know what God does? God responds back and says, yeah, I'm going to do something about them. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. And then Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, wait a second. The Chaldeans are worse than us. How, how is it that you can bring the Chaldeans to judge us? I mean, that's like, you know, okay, Brawley is under judgment. We're going to bring the people from San Francisco to come judge the people in Brawley. You know, What's that? <laughs> no, thanks. You're like, well, well, wait a second. How is that possible, right? But God tells them, no, I'm going to bring them to judge you, and then I'm going to turn around and judge them. All right? So, so God is fully omniscient of 
even catastrophes and, and disasters that are brought about. But if you limit God's omniscience, if you limit and say he didn't know those negative things would happen, one of my retorts is going to be, okay, well, if he didn't know that's going to happen, how can he guarantee that the future will be what it will be, right? How can you guarantee that everything will end up the way the scriptures say will end up if he cannot even, even foresee the, the, the kinds of, of evil and, and catastrophes and, and um, the kind of opposition that's going to come in the future, right? Yeah. You know, in Hebrews 4, the whole thing is about rest, at least the section that yeah. we're in. Yeah. It always occurred to me that if, if he's at rest, it's already done. Like yeah. it's already, He doesn't have to like, okay, I've got to put up my nap. Go back and fix something. That's right. Go back to yeah, yeah, He's yeah. Done. Yeah, Completed. yeah. That that's a, that's an interesting illustration, um, and certainly, you know, Isaiah. You know, from the uh, you know end to the beginning. You know, even before the beginning, God God knew the end from the beginning, and all things will will come to pass. And I'm I'm butchering that verse a little bit. Let me see here. Let me see if I can find that. Um, Isaiah, let's see, <coughs> Isaiah 46, verse 10. Isaiah 46, uh, verse 10 reads, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, Things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So from declaring the end from the beginning. So in other words, if he knows the end from the beginning, guess what? He knows everything that's going to happen in between. And earlier this morning, I read that um, quote from Jesus in reference to Judah, Judas, um, right? The one who's going to portray, betray him. And he was saying, look, the son of man is going to have to go the way he must go, the way it's been prophesied of him which is the fact that one would betray him. Jesus knew that all along. Even, he even told the disciples, it's not one of you a devil, right? I chose you, and yet one of you is a devil. Um, and yet um, we know that, that the one who would betray him would end up being judged. I mean, right down to the details of having someone betray him. You, you know, you, you can't be able to make that kind of prophecy without having total control, having sovereign control over all things. But once you start to limit his omniscience, you start to impact all the other attributes. You start to impact his sovereignty, his control. You start to impact his omnipotence. You start to impact all kinds of other things. Um, and you, you have to come up with alternate explanations for passages like Isaiah 46.10, that if he knew the end from the beginning, how do we explain he could know that and not know the evil that's going to come, Right? Um, but but he knows all those things, and he prophesies even the evil that uh, that will come. So looking at our statement again, so I wanted to bring that up because it says the infinite omniscient spirit, and um, and omniscient is certainly true, but there's a whole lot of attributes that you could really include there. You know, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign, um, omnipresent, um, and we didn't even talk about his the fact that he's perfectly just, right? He's good. He's merciful. Um, he's gracious. I mean, turn to Exodus 34. Exodus uh, chapter 34. So second book of the Old Testament, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. 
And we read this, the Lord passed by in front of him, him being Moses, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So we see here that there are other attributes being brought forth aside from all the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present attributes that we often think of, and that's the fact that from verse 6 that he is compassionate. It's the same word for, for mercy. It's, um, in fact, that the word um, talks about innards. It's, uh, it's, so it's this idea that from the inside you, you have mercy upon someone, that you have this feeling of, uh, of love and, and compassion towards someone. So compassionate and gracious, and we know grace means un, unmerited favor. So gracious means that he is prone to, to giving um, that, that which others do not deserve, giving good that, is, that others do not deserve. Slow to anger, um, really that is a, that's put on full display throughout the Old Testament, right? Slow to anger. I mean, how much rebellion does he put up with before he finally exiles them from the land? Um, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And that word loving kindness, that the Hebrew word is uh, chesed. And, and it's, um, loving kindness is really the best kind of translation we can come up for it. But it means so much more than just loving kindness. I mean, this, it's this goodness of God that the Israelites absolutely, and all of us absolutely need from him. And you read through the Psalms and you see loving kindness showing up over and over and over and over again. The loving kindness of God. Um, but let me ask you this. When we talk about the love of God, the love of God. I often say that you cannot understand the love of God without first understanding the justice and mercy. The, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the justice. Let me think here. The justice and righteousness of God first. So first of all, let me ask you this. God is perfectly just. He's perfectly righteous. Would everyone agree with that? Perfectly just, perfectly righteous. Okay, and they don't mean the exact same things, right? Say, what do I mean by righteous? Say it again, Mel. All good, all, all good, all holy. He, he always does what's right. Right? I mean, he talks about his actions. He always does what's right. So you, when you talk about a, a righteous person or a righteous citizen, it's a person who obeys the law, does what, what is right. Just has a different connotation. Now, it is connected to righteousness because without a law that establishes what is righteous, you can't have justice. But what is justice? What do we think of justice? What does it mean to be just? Um, get what's coming to you. Now, what do you mean by accountable? Um, punished according to your deeds. Yeah, punished according to your deeds. And I heard the word fair, right? Yeah, fair. So just means fair. You get exactly what you deserve. If it, you know, and so we, we think of it this way. Righteousness is established by the law, right? So we have laws in this land. We have laws in this city. We have laws that we have to be able to abide by. You know, but if you don't obey those laws, then you're taken to court. And it's in court where justice is served, right? And so a judge is expected to be able to preside over a case, look at the facts, and be able to determine what is the fair sentence for this person. You know, of course, there's also the enforcement arm. That's, you know, that's where police officers come in. The enfor really, police officers are there to enforce the, the law, right? To enforce the law. And if anyone breaks the law, it's the police officers who help bring them to the court of law where they will be judged uh, for their crimes. So we would say God is perfectly righteous. He is right in everything that he does. And he is just in that he gives you exactly what you deserve. 
Right. But now, now, so this is, that, that's the thing. So here, look, look again at Exodus uh, 34, 6 and 7. So Maureen is saying, no, but he doesn't. And I know what she means by that. But we're going to look at Exodus 34, 6 and 7 once again. Look, starting in verse 7, it says, He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Okay, so we have this idea of forgiveness. But then in the very next statement after that, it says, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So this idea that he will not leave the guilty unpunished speaks towards his justice, right? But here's the thing. How is it that he can leave the guilty unpunished and at the same time forgive iniquity and sins? Because he's sovereign. I would, I would be a little, even more specific than that. Because here's the thing. You can't be both without, without someone like Jesus Christ, okay. all right, who takes the sins of those who believe away. And so here's, here's the thing. I know what you're saying when you say, well, he doesn't always give us what, he, what we deserve. And yet he is fully just. How is he just? He is just because the punishment we deserve went to who? Jesus. Jesus. Turn with me, Romans 3, 21 to 26. I mean, we know the, the book of Romans just goes into tremendous depth on justification by faith, right? I mean, God, you know, Paul is really talking about the gospel of God. In fact, um, just real quick, look, look at uh, Romans 1. You know, Romans 1, I mean, this, starting in verse 16, 16 and 17, this is really the thesis statement from Paul. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, and he's talking about the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then starting in verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul shows just how man can never um, be justified by the works of the law. By, by the works of the law, no man will be able to stand. Okay, no man, because everyone is guilty under the law. Jump to chapter 3, look at verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20, and this is really the summation of what Paul said going back to chapter 1, verse 18. 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, if he stops here, if, he, if Paul had stopped here, there's no hope. That's it. There's no justification. All of us are going to hell. All of us are going to be judged. But verse 21, he says, but now. So this idea, but now, apart from the law. So the law revealed the righteousness of God, but by the law, the righteousness of God condemns us. But he's saying, apart from that law, that the righteousness has been manifest. So in other words, apart from the law, there's another way that the righteousness of God has been revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's the idea that the law and the prophets look forward to this coming manifestation of righteousness. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift. So it's no longer by the law. It's no longer by works of the law. It is justified. You are justified now as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25 says, God 
whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that that's a satisfaction for his wrath in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So God is demonstrating his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, what's he talking about? The sins previously committed. He's talking about the fact that going back to the beginning, there were people who were saved by God, who said that who were spared because of their faith in God. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But that is not completely righteous or just of God because Abraham was a sinner. But it is righteous of God to do that. Why? Because the sins of Abraham were paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when I say, so when you say, but we don't get what we deserve, that's true in a sense. And yet God still doles out the punishment for all sin. It's just a matter of, are you going to bear it or does Christ bear it? You know, it's one or the other. And um, so at the end of this section here, because of the forbearance of God, at the end, verse 25, for in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 25 and 26, he's saying that God is righteous for all the saints of the past. The ones who were justified by God, they're justified exactly because of his work of Jesus Christ. But he is also righteous over the saints of current time and in the future. You know, in fact, it says he is the just and the justifier. So he is not only just in, in being fair as a judge, but he is also the justifier. He's the one that makes us righteous before him through Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's just a, a very rich and, and amazing truth that we have here. And it only comes by our faith in Jesus Christ that we can be justified before God. Um, so with that, um, we're at the top of our hour. Let's take a look at the rest of the um, paragraph. And maybe we'll, you know, we could finish this next week. Uh, but let's take a look, see if there's anything else that we need to really look at. So, the, um, so God is the infinite, omniscient spirit, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. Um, I probably word that as worthy of all praise, worship, and adoration or something like that, but, you know, this is fine. And in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think we talked about that. Equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Um, I, I might say that they're equal in essence, that they're all equal in the sense that they're all God. They're distinct in their roles and, and, what they, and how they function, but in complete harmony with one another. And, and um, there are good verses here. Um, I think in the future I might add some other verses uh, to this uh, to, to kind of back up uh, this statement. Uh, but any questions about that statement, any questions about things we've discussed at all? No? All right, let me um, go ahead and close out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we had to go over your scriptures. We thank you for the blessed truth that the scriptures reveal about who you are, um, that you are indeed a triunity. You indeed consist of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The entire scriptures, even going all the way back to Genesis, testify to this fact. Father, I pray that these truths would not just be dead truths within us, but we would use them to help inform our worship and our praise of you. We would use them to really just meditate upon your greatness and how separate you are um, even from mankind. And yet in your love and mercy and grace, uh, you have saved us. You have reached out to us. You have even 
um, provided a way for our sins to be forgiven and, and even to adopt us into your family. Uh, Father, these truths are far too wonderful for us to fully comprehend, but I pray that we would never stop meditating upon them. I pray that we would never stop um, glorifying you on account of them. And Father, we pray for the rest of this night, the fellowship that we will have, um, that you be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.